Welcome, everyone, to episode two of our Network 5 Emergency Medicine Case Series. This episode, we have another challenging case. We'd love for you to join us and have a think as you listen along to how you might do things differently. Remember, there are no right answers, only reflections on thought bubbles. I think at this point, it might also be worthwhile touching on some of my own personal reflections on case discussions in general. I think it's worthwhile maybe reflecting on the fact that emergency care is informed by the context in which it's provided, and words are a poor reflection of this. With this in mind, I advocate for compassion when hearing your colleagues open up about challenging cases, because reflection is central to us improving as emergency care providers, and we're all responsible for developing an environment which engenders this clinical practice. Now, on to the case. I'll hand over to my colleague Shreyas to start telling us a story. Hi everyone, Shreyas here. This was probably one of the more challenging cases that I had during my registrar career. I'm going to set the scene. It was towards the end of 2021. New South Wales was in the middle of the Omicron COVID outbreak. Funny how some of our best stories seem to have all been during that time. I was working in a urban district hospital, small to medium-sized emergency department in northern New South Wales, where the COVID outbreak was very significant. It was a night shift. There was one of me and two very capable senior residents, and it was quite a busy department. So with that in mind, we had two Category 2 patients show up at the same time. Now, one of them was a chest pain, a middle-aged lady, certainly something that required attention. And the second one, the triage immediately had the alarm bells in the back of my mind ringing. So it was an 18-year-old boy, and he'd presented with nausea and vomiting, and this was in the context of COVID illness. And uh, he had a background of IgA nephropathy for which he was on hemodialysis. I think all of us, after a certain amount of time in medicine, have that instinct of something that's going to go wrong. And I'm sure most of you listening to that initial triage will have had the same reaction that I did. Just a little bit of a note on our COVID area in that department. Now, this was at a time when the entire state was being overrun with COVID and the region that I was working was in particularly uh, difficult situation. We'd converted a segment of the emergency department that was few of the side rooms and the mental health treatment spaces essentially into a dedicated COVID bay. There was two nurses dedicated to that area, one who was to be present at all times, another one who would uh, be able to run to sort of access treatments and things. And there was a number of segregated rooms and a central space which could be used for resuscitation. So I had a difficult decision. This patient who seemed kind of sick was going into this space, which was completely isolated from the rest of the department. Now, the initial situation from the nursing staff, the patient was complaining of a headache. They noted that the blood pressure was 200 on 130, but the other vitals were normal. They gave him some intramuscular and Danstron, and they did an ECG, which they showed me, and I noted that there was some tall, tented T waves. Difficult decision for me. Do I go into the COVID area and risk losing awareness of everything else that's happening in the department? Or do I delegate one of my very capable SRMOs to go and see the patient and act as a conduit for me to care for the patient through them? Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. I think the situation you're describing and the picture you've painted just sort of reminds me of sort of how it was as a night registrar in the emergency departments that I worked in. And I think the 
core challenge that you're describing is very much the existential crisis of the night team um, in an emergency department. You've got the sickest patients sometimes presenting in those after-hours contexts. You've got the poorest resources in terms of skill mix and just sheer human capital. And then the other point that you mentioned, I think is really interesting as well, which is the paradox that a lot of senior emergency care providers face, which is this idea of having a very granular understanding of individual patients' problems, but also having a macro understanding of the department's problems. I can only speak from my own experience as a care provider in this context, but I would have to say, if I'm being honest, that the care that I provide to an individual patient is not as good as it was when I was a registrar now that I'm a consultant. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm constantly getting interrupted uh, by other care providers, either to you know sign ECGs, hear about urgent patients that need review, obviously resuscitation calls, not to mention the the pain of carrying the admitting officer phone in a busy emergency department. And so I would put to you that a clinical history and examination that might have taken me 20 minutes of consecutive time when I was a registrar now takes me two hours of broken time. And I think that provides worse care to patients. So there is an argument to be made there that perhaps the decision to send the SRMO who maybe is less senior in capability might actually provide better care because they're free to provide uninterrupted attention. So what did you end up doing and what was your approach? I think that really sort of epitomizes the situation that I was in. And I mean, I guess it's important to note that this isn't unique to night shifts. It's not not even unique to registrars. Um, There's a variety of clinicians out there that in situations like this on a routine basis, particularly in some of our smaller departments. So as we go during this case, I think this is the really interesting thing about Uh, this particular case discussion is the nuances of these decisions. So we really want you guys to think about what you would do in this situation. I decided to send my SRMO. It was a tricky one. I had the gut instinct of this is not going to go well, but at the same time, I had faith in my SRMO. um, And I went through a process which Although I didn't quite have the labels at that stage of my training, it was sort of a a basic crisis resource management process. And it was sort of akin to the approach that's been advocated by Dr. Cliff Reed, who's an emergency physician and retrievalist in Australia, who's published a paper on this and also um, talked about it quite well on his YouTube channel. So anyone who's interested can check that out. And that's the zero point survey. Now, in brief, essentially the zero point survey advocates that anytime you're facing a critical situation, you think about three things. You think about yourself, you think about your team, and you think about your environment, and you take steps to optimize each of those three things. And that's kind of what I was doing in a less conscious way. So whenever I'm making a decision to delegate something, I'm always thinking to myself about why I'm making that decision. Am I only thinking about the patient? Am I hungry? Am I tired? Is there a part of me that's just lazy? Is there something that is deterring me from doing what should actually be the best thing for the patient? Or am I making a, a decision that's in the best interests of the clinical situation? So that's part one. Part two is understanding the capabilities of my team. I had two SRMOs that were both highly skilled. They were, they were very technically competent. And neither of them was overconfident enough to believe that they could handle a critical situation without input from myself. And so I didn't have any fear that they would not escalate appropriately. Therefore thought that it would be reasonable to rely on them as an initial point of contact. And I was able to essentially give them a detailed management plan for what we were going to do about the hyperkalemia so that at least they went in armed with an initial approach to the patient. 
So that was the, the team. Now the environment was probably the thing that I had the least control over, particularly from a distance. In retrospect, I would possibly have communicated with the senior nurses earlier to make sure that uh, the patient was at least in a more observed, sort of more closely monitored part of the COVID area. But having said that, I think the nurses who were in there were suitably aware that this was a patient that had the risk of deterioration and they were paying quite close attention to the patient anyway. That was basically my initial approach. And then it became an issue of how we were going to prioritize the care of the patient as, yeah. as well as the patient in the context of the rest of the department. I think that sounds very reasonable. I think just my thoughts on that matter, I suppose crisis resource management as a whole, I think it's important to know where that came from historically. It's well acknowledged that many of the uh, adverse outcomes that patients experience when we provide care for them are direct results of human error. And crisis resource management as a broad umbrella term is a tool that we can utilize as emergency care providers in order to provide and develop an environment for which we care for patients in where human error is minimized. And so that looks very different, but depending on the department and depending on the clinical situation. But I'm sure that a lot of you out there are practicing crisis resource management techniques, perhaps without even fully realizing that it's called crisis resource management. So things that might be crisis resource management would be things like closed loop communication, graded assertiveness, and team role allocation. So I think those are three things that I think has been drilled into us as resuscitationists, be it medical or nursing. We both have quite hierarchical structures in the emergency department. And I think as someone who practices resuscitation reasonably frequently, it does minimize human error quite significantly. And I think Cliff's take on this is just an extension of this and really brings the external internal. And so you try and control those variable factors that exist within yourself in order to better conduct yourself in these situations to minimize your own personal human error. I think there's one point that I would raise and, you know, about your decision to send the SRMO in. I think the real question here is like, what is the value of a senior clinician? And I think the value that a senior clinician has is gestalt, really. And I think that's been proven multiple times. I've got all these scoring systems. We're about as good as them if you're senior enough. And I think the value of gestalt for a senior clinician, nothing can really replace direct visualization of the patient. In your particular scenario with this particular patient, COVID is the elephant in the room. Should you remove that from the equation? I'll probably put to you that the way you probably would have managed this is wander over with the SRMO, right, and have a look and then make a determination based off vague, non-tangible properties that you kind of suss out from being in the recess room about whether you need to be there or not for very long. That's obviously complicated by the fact that getting in and out of a COVID room is in and of itself like a five-minute process. But for those people out there for whom that might be an option, I think there is value in that. Even just walking past, having a look if you don't have the time or even casting an eye on them, you might only have to spend a quarter of the time that a junior clinician has to spend to come up with twice as many assertions about the severity and etiology of the patient's illness. And I think there's value in that. And I think that's not talked about enough. That would be the only other thing I would maybe add to your decision-making process around that. I agree. In in the time since I've had this case, every single time I've thought about it, and I've thought about it a lot, I've not been able to come to a conclusion about whether I made the right call or not. I still sort of agonize it in my mind, the pros and cons. I think you're completely right. And I think this is something that can actually also be extrapolated. You know, now that the COVID situation is slightly different, we can extrapolate this to the access block environment, because I've certainly experienced that departments where I'm facing less access block pressure, the patients get significantly more face time with me than departments where that's not the case. And that's purely because my ability to just wander to a bed 
eyeball a patient and then wander back takes significantly less time than if putting the patient in a place where I can look at them takes a giant logistical juggle of talking to three different nurses and asking the intern to run three laps around the department. There's sort of multiple considerations to balance, isn't there? And possibly with the retrospective scope of knowing exactly how things panned out, it would have been better for me to enter that room earlier. Essentially, I saw the other cat too. I'd given this plan to the SRMO. And around 10 minutes later, I've sort of done the needful immediate care for that other cat too. And I was approached by one of my senior nursing colleagues. She said, the second SRMO has now gone into the room with the first SRMO to look after that patient because he is looking quite sick and she's quite concerned. There's few things in the ED that will raise my hackles more than a nurse who I've worked with for a long time or who I know has a lot of experience being concerned about a patient. And so that was uh, double alarm bells for me. At that point, it became sort of abundantly clear that I needed to go in and directly take control of the situation. I couldn't manage it from afar anymore. Uh, so a little bit more about the patient's context. So this is a combination of a history from the patient and from looking at his notes. So as I said, he's got IgA nephropathy. He was on intermittent hemodialysis via Hickman line. His actually recently been in hospital because of the same COVID illness with hyperkalemia and ECG changes and required urgent dialysis. And he'd last had dialysis uh, two days ago in the dialysis unit. He still passed urine. And for whatever reason, he wasn't on a loop diuretic. He wasn't on furizumide, but he was on spironolactone. And the other interesting thing was that he had severe refractory hypertension with a baseline blood pressure, he told me, around 160. And that was despite being on bisoprolol, methyl dopa, lurconetapine, and spironolactone, and labetalol. So when I saw him initially, he was a little bit drowsy, but alert enough to talk to me, give me a full history, interact with me, comply with the things that I asked him to do and allow me to examine him. His blood pressure seemed to be progressively rising and he was very visibly nauseated and complaining of a headache. The blood pressure was sort of reaching the around the 230, 240 marks systolic and around 140 diastolic, so very high. One of my SRMOs had obtained some IV access, they'd done a VBG, the potassium was 6.9. So there's multiple emergencies in this situation. And so I sort of obviously identified that. This patient was at that point in one of the sort of side rooms with a portable monitor and so needed to have a higher level of care. So we moved him to one of the more monitored rooms in the COVID area and I requested my two nursing staff that I had to start preparing medications for the hyperkalemia as well as a GTN infusion for the blood pressure. Now, bear in mind, as I told you, I've only got two nurses available to me. There's one to go to the drug room and access the meds. And then there's another one who can communicate with me and then who can check meds with the first nurse. And so I need to decide what I treat first. Yeah. I mean, I think no one wants to be that person, right? Who's just yelling off millions of things to do. And I think it's prioritization and decision making. And so and it's, it's paired like that for a reason. Um, and I think, I think it's key to remember that fact. Now, so what did you treat first? What would you treat first? So you've got two issues here by the sounds of things. You've got a hypertensive crisis potentially and a hyperkalemia. So what were your choices? Yeah. So it was difficult. My choice was actually the hyperkalemia first, which I think with the information that I had uh, would be a decision that I would probably make again. There's a paucity of evidence around this. Uh, the things that we know are that 
the progression of hyperkalemia is inherently unpredictable. For hyperkalemia, there's very poor correlation diagnostically between a potassium level and ECG changes, but we do know that the presence of ECG changes is the factor that is correlated with mortality. And so this patient had uh, ECG changes. There's very little literature, that, at least that I could find, that demonstrates any sort of consistent progression in how the ECG will change with hyperkalemia. So although I have an awareness that some of the factors that you might see might be a tenting of the T wave, a loss of the P wave, a broadening of the QRS, and eventually, you know, these sine wave patterns. There's nothing that I can point to that says this is going to happen in a stepwise approach. And the reality was that that patient could develop an arrhythmia at any moment. So given that I prioritized calcium gluconate membrane stabilization as immediate point one, uh, insulin dextrose point two, and then the GTN infusion as the third priority for getting on top of the blood pressure. And I think that's fair. I think, you know, uh, hyperkalemic arrhythmias can happen with very little notice, essentially. And the ECG is an indication of severity um, to some degree, but with a very limited degree of accuracy as to how severe. And I think the presence of ECG changes should always be a red flag, regardless of whether it's peaked T waves or a broad QRS. I don't think you would want to be discerning one versus the other in an attempt to predict what the level's going to be. Absolutely. And I guess the other thing that was in my mind was, you know, we think we think about etiology and severity with each of these things. We have etiologies for both of these potential problems. You know, this patient is an end-stage kidney patient. He's got an acute illness uh, that might be setting things off. He's got medications that might be contributing to hyperkalemia. But we know that he tends to run at a high blood pressure. And him telling me that when he records it, it's often 160 means that probably for a large fraction of the time, he sits higher than that. And at that point, although he was symptomatic, he was still talking to me and he was still alert enough to engage. And there was no clinical manifestation of end organ failure to suggest that this required immediate point blank management. And so I think that sort of played into my treatment decision making as well. Having said that, I did consider the potential delays. And so I did look at trying to give the patients oral medications early in the hope that that would be an effective way of reducing his blood pressure without overcorrecting. It was about 5 a.m. now. So giving his 8 a.m. medications, you know, a couple of hours early wasn't going to cause him harm by any measure. Unfortunately, the patient was too nauseated at that time. Yeah, I think there are some interesting points there that are worthwhile considering. I think the first and foremost one is we're all very familiar with hyperkalemia as emergency care practitioners, and it is very much low-hanging fruit. If you're thinking within the treatment umbrella of hyperkalemia, what is it that I am going to want to be doing? We can kind of break it up into membrane stabilization, cellular shift, or alterations in the intravascular concentration of potassium, and then the more definitive options of elimination of the potassium, either through the renal tract or the gastrointestinal system. And so... Out of those three priorities, I suppose if we're most concerned about the arrhythmogenicity of the hyperkalemia, then 20-second push of some calcium chloride or calcium gluconate is hardly as resource-consuming as saying, no, we'll wait for the GTN infusion to be drawn up and commenced before we'll commence the calcium. And so I think that's also worthwhile remembering. And everyone's very familiar with hyperkalemia treatment because it is such a common problem that we deal with and people are probably less familiar with uh, hypertensive crises particularly hypertensive encephalopathy it's not something that we see particularly commonly and so i think there's some wisdom in that in really pushing the hyperkalemia treatment because you can just get it done quickly yeah sometimes it's just about the practicality of the situation isn't it and you know being aware of what is going to be easy for your staff 
And I think speaking of pragmatics, I think there are a few other things it's worthwhile thinking about with the hyperkalemia management in the context of renal failure. The first and foremost one would be how much insulin would you give? So we can agree that we give calcium for membrane stabilization. And then we've got various strategies, beta agonists, insulin dextrose, bicarbonate to facilitate that cellular shift. Fruzamide, rhizonium, and dialysis as our more definitive options for enhancing elimination of the potassium. What would you think about the insulin, I think, is the main thing that we would give next after the calcium. And one of those interesting points is, well, insulin is renally eliminated. You know, our first postulation as clinicians is to first do no harm. And you want to minimize the incidences of hypoglycemia as part of your neuroprotection management with the insulin that you're giving in someone with this clinical scenario. And I think it's worthwhile noting that there's very little difference in the reduction of potassium with five or 10 units of insulin administration. And that's particularly salient for patients with altered elimination of insulin, such as those with renal disease. Secondarily, the European Society Resuscitation Council, as well as the Renal Society, also postulates that a pre-treatment glucose of less than seven would perhaps be better treated with a glucose infusion over two to six hours, uh, rather than a single bolus of 50 mils of 50% dextrose. Again, combating what might be a delayed manifestation of hypoglycemia glycemia. Now, anecdotally, I can say I've seen it with reasonable frequency when I treat hyperkalemia in patients with renal failure. Yeah, no, definitely me too. That was how I actually came across this literature because I, I was also wondering whether there was any evidence for reduction in doses for those things. So I think that's a worthwhile takeaway for me when I think about this case. That is pretty much what I did. I'm not entirely sure why, based on the records, I gave 4.4 of millimoles of calcium gluconate. Typically, I tend to reach for 6.6 millimoles as an IV bolus, which is equivalent of sort of calcium chloride bolus, but in a slightly larger volume, slightly less abrasive to your uh, peripheral veins. And then I gave the five units of Actrapid and a 25 mil bolus of 50% dextrose, specifically for that reason of trying to avoid hypoglycemia. I think in my mind, ultimately, neuroprotective resuscitation is the primary goal of all resuscitation. Ultimately, if there's not a functional neurological outcome, then we've achieved nothing. So I've always got that in the back of my mind to protect the brain at all costs. So unfortunately, things took a bit of a turn for the worse. (laughs) So I've requested my nursing staff to obtain my drugs, my insulin dextrose in in those uh, doses and the, the calcium, the GTN. And I'm offering my patient the pills. I've taken them out of his bag for him, for his blood pressure. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll take them. I'll take them. But he seemed to be turning away from me. And so I was like, can you just turn towards me so I can give you these medications? And then I realized that the reason that he wasn't turning towards me was because he was having left-sided head and body deviation and was deteriorating into a focal seizure, which then progressed into a generalized tonic-clonic seizure with intermittent decerebrate posturing. So I was alarmed. We moved him into the COVID resus bay. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, in that particular time, at that particular day at 5 a.m., there was no bag valve mask, no resus trolley, and no staff other than the one nurse who was with me. So I hit the big red button on the wall and, there was. and did a jaw thrust and hoped that someone would bring me some oxygen in time for me to oxygenate my patient. So that was the alarming point of the day, or at least alarming point number one. So immediately... We had an influx of staff and resources and even medical and intensive care colleagues from other parts of the hospital came because of the the wall buzzer um, and were very helpful. So thank you to them. 
And at that time, we managed to stabilize the patient. So we did some basic airway maneuvers. We gave some midazolam. We gave the uh, hyperkalemia treatment that I just mentioned. The patient had a transient period of stability. With the midazolam, I think some of that sympathetic tone was ablated. The blood pressure sort of sat around the 180 mark for a little while, but he was abtunded. And we had a brief period to pause and think. So what is happening? Yeah. So at this point, I've got multiple problems. I've got a obtunded COVID patient in a part of the hospital system that is being overwhelmed with COVID such that critically retrieving out a COVID patient is extremely logistically difficult. The intensive care unit is full. And in particular, there's no dedicated COVID treatment spaces. We contacted the renal physician on call. And unfortunately, you know, very reasonable way that the renal department had been managing its dialysis patients was that they were doing alternate days of COVID and non-COVID patients. And the day that was coming, that we were coming into was a non-COVID day. And so there was no way that we were going to be able to fit a, even if he neurologically recovered, we we're not going to be able to fit a COVID patient into a room full of non-COVID dialysis patients. I had a definitive treatment problem because ultimately the definitive treatment for both of these issues, regardless of you know elimination and temporization of potassium, regardless of transient blood pressure controlling medications, this patient needed hemodialysis. There was also diagnostic considerations. So this patient's now tunded. He is acutely unwell. He's obviously got this COVID illness. We need to risk stratify that. We need to look for secondary complications. We need to assess if his hypertension was a secondary to the existing potential complications or was there an additional reason for his hypertension could he have had an intracranial event so he was going to need some imaging so all of these issues were playing in my mind and in particular the logistics of sorting these issues out was playing in my mind yeah i can imagine so it sounds like the driver of the pathology here is i mean obviously the need for dialysis is there in the background but the hypertension obviously is the pathological driver here with the fundamental cause being a background of renal disease and yeah. secondary arterial disease so hypertensive crisis in the renal patient and, and the management of that what was your approach that you employed there at the bedside yeah so i think hypertensive crisis is interesting because there's many potential underlying mechanisms but by and large there's a fairly common group of drugs and in most situations then there's not wrong answers there's only wrong answers to specific circumstances. So for example, in a pheochromocytoma, you probably don't want to start with a beta blocker. I think we need to be aware of the underlying pathophysiology. And in the context of this renal patient, it's going to be severe volume overload that is causing a hypertensive crisis. I probably missed a trick slightly when it came to sort of two for one bargain of treating both conditions. Uh, I could have given him some furismide. Now, realistically speaking, given the severity of his disease, it was probably a drop in the ocean for him, but it would have been one drug treatment that would have potentially addressed both problems of eliminating potassium and also eliminating some volume if he was able to still pass urine in that situation. And it causes vasodilation as well. Yeah. So multiple potential benefits. Other sort of management for me was I need uh, titratable medications that are easily accessible by my nursing staff and that are going to be rapid onset, rapid offset. And so for me, that was a GTN infusion. Why an infusion and not a bolus? Yeah. So literature recommendations for this essentially suggest that we need to avoid overcorrection. That's probably the biggest harm that we can do to a patient in this situation. And so Having an infusion gives us much more minute-to-minute -minute control over the patient's blood pressure than giving a bolus dose and then having to chase it back. 
as we know, in all cases of neuroprotection, having significant swings up and down of blood pressure is very harmful to the brain. So that was the rationale. Now, unfortunately, this patient was not interested in my rationale. And so despite me starting, not only starting the GTN infusion, but maxing it to the highest possible dose rate, he continued to have severe hypertension. I initially started him with a 10 mole bolus and, and started the infusion. And for that brief period, while the medaz was still in effect, we seemed to think that we were winning. I then proceeded to put an art line in. And while I was putting the arterial line in, the patient started to wake up. And as he was waking up and becoming agitated, he started fighting me. And as he started fighting me, his blood pressure started rising, which caused him to become more agitated, which caused him to fight me more. And we entered a horrific vicious spiral that resulted in his blood pressure peaking at almost 300 systolic. So maxed out the GTN infusion. Now at this point, it became a little bit about what was readily accessible. With hypertensive emergencies, we need to always bear in mind what our targets are. By and large, in the medium term, so over a 24-48 hour period, what we want to do is bring that patient back to a normal, or at least normal for the patient, cerebral autoregulatory range. So I know for this particular patient that he normally sits at 160. So that is my medium term target. Now, early on, I don't want to achieve in the first six hours, I don't want to achieve more than a quarter of that target reduction. And bear in mind, that's target reduction. That's not the absolute value. So if he was sitting mostly at the 200, 220 mark in the initial phase, so that's say 60 point difference, I don't want to drop his blood pressure by more than around 15 millimeters of mercury in that first six hours. Having said that, he went from 220 to 290 very quickly. And so I don't need to worry that his cerebral autoregulation has compensated and increased to a range of 250, and I'm going to cause him harm by dropping that blood pressure back down to 200 straight away. And in fact, the longer I let in his blood pressure sit at 290, the more potential damage I was potentially doing to his cerebral vasculature. And so that correction, you know, in the 200 realm, as laughable as that sounds, was urgent. And so in that moment, and, you know, I I called my consultant on call. We had uh, ICU and medical inputs as well. We were doing everything we can. So we were giving libidolol boluses, hydralazine boluses. The patient was agitated. We even resorted to giving multiple propofol boluses to try and control both problems. And uh, we were barely winning. We sort of, with the propofol, managed to get him back to around 200-ish. At that point, it became abundantly clear that he needed to be intubated, which we proceeded to do. And unfortunately, having intubated him, the induction doses and some fentanyl, it was propofol, fentanyl, and rocuronium, we proceeded to then overcorrect. So he dropped his blood pressure to around 130 systolic immediately after the intubation. And so we actually had to temporarily pause all of his vasodilators to try and bring it back up. And so I think that really illustrates the risk of giving bolus dosing medications. Now, in that particular situation, with the benefit of hindsight, I think I would have preferred a libidolol infusion to the bolus doses. Although we need to be aware that it was probably pragmatically going to be tricky to draw up the infusion yeah. given the, the limited nursing resources that we had. So in that context, our hands were a little bit tied. That's certainly a, a bit more optimal. Yeah, and not to mention, it sounds like the hypertension was multifactorial. Yes, you've got the underlying base of renal disease, fluid overload, cerebral autoregulatory dysfunction, but then you add to that the agitation, the neuromuscular generation of sympathetic stimulus and heat, and then you're taking away a few of those by just giving a bit of midaz or a bit of fentanyl and propofol and rock. And so it's probably all culminating in that drop. Yeah, and, and I think those kinds of things are hard to predict, important to acknowledge and act upon. 
And yeah. I think that's a more pragmatic way of looking at it from a how do I get better from this kind of case. I don't think you can realistically say I never want anything to go wrong ever. But I think what you can do is understand maybe that there are multiple factors at play and then also acknowledge when something isn't going correctly, step back, apply your CRM principles, which is essentially what you did when you intubated the patient, right? You were, everything was spiraling out of control. You likely took a step back and were just like, well, the agitation needs to be sorted and so we need to do something for that, hence the propofol, which then led to the fact that he probably needs brain imaging because of the orthocal seizure and hence the tube. And I think it's interesting how these things progress when you operate by first principles. Yeah, absolutely. I think that taking a step back is something that you don't just need to do at the start. You can do that. And in fact, it's very helpful to do that You know, frequently during any critical resuscitation or during just during a shift. It's just beneficial to sometimes just step back, take the bigger picture view and be able to perceive the higher order priorities for the patient. So the higher order priorities for this patient was controlling the agitation, stabilizing the blood pressure and essentially just taking control of the situation, which involved essentially taking over the physiology because uh, taking a slightly more conservative route was just failing. I think it's worth just mentioning briefly some of the other potential agent choices. So sodium nitroprusside is uh, often a quite beneficial agent for this situation, particularly in the first 24, 48 hours, again, being readily titratable. Esmolol is another similar one, probably the most titratable out of all of the antihypertensive options. The downside of both of those is familiarity in the emergency department. And I think that's something to always be aware of is what are your nurses comfortable with? Because if the nurses are uncomfortable, they may do it, but they're not going to be able to do it as fast. And that's just pure pragmatics of the situation. And so I think acknowledging that is important. I think the other point that's useful to touch on, given how a lot of our initial discussions around the case were around prioritization, is about how much time you have with hypertensive crises. And I think it's something that requires early recognition and early initiation of treatment. But that goal of by what time do I want this to be definitively managed? Well, you're looking at a 24-hour time frame. And I think that speaks to the idea that maybe infusions are better than boluses because you've got greater control over the pharmacokinetics, right? You establish a therapeutic index with much greater degree of accuracy and you've got that ability to titrate and you're less likely to overshoot. I think that's true of most infusions over most bolus dosing anyway, but certainly plays a role in resuscitation because I don't think we employ infusions very often in resuscitation outside of, you know, vasopressor infusions for sepsis, for example. And I think hypertension is really one of those underutilized areas where we could probably benefit from having a greater understanding of what the benefits of infusions are. Yeah, absolutely. And and that brings me to hydralazine, which is probably the one vasodilator that I haven't touched on. I think uh, when we think about this, we think about our sort of pure vasodilators, we think about our beta blockers, we think about our or beta blockers or mixed adrenergic blockers, we think about our calcium channel blockers. And each of those potentially have a role. Essentially, my preference for the GTN and the libidolol, as I've mentioned, are availability-based. Hydralazine is also readily available, but the reason I probably prefer it slightly less in general situations is for the reason that you've just said, which is we have time, so we don't need to just push a bolus and then wait. Hydralazine also doesn't tend to last that long, and so you're more likely to achieve a swinging blood pressure rather than a controlled reduction. Having said that, sometimes the pragmatics of the situation demand that you just need to use the tools that are available to you. And certainly we used hydralazine in this situation for that specific reason. But with that sort of a bolus dosing agent, I think the key is to give small aliquots frequently with frequent reassessment. And that allows you to do it 
achieve essentially a similar benefit to an infusion of having something that's sort of closely monitored and closely titrated. Yeah. I think it's important to have an expectation of every treatment you provide because then you can appropriately assess its efficacy. And that's probably the only context within which you can use treatment as a diagnostic tool um, if you have an expectation of what you want it to achieve. And it's very similar here with the hydralazine, I think. So how did the rest of the case progress? Yeah, so look, after we'd finally managed to control his 300 systolic blood pressure and we'd uh, gotten on top of his seizures, we'd gotten on top of the hyperkalemia and we'd intubated the patient. By that time, morning handover had finished without me, uh, the night registrar who was looking after the department. So I handed over to my daytime colleagues who took him through the CT scanner, established some central access and took him to ICU. I'm pleased to say that he actually ended up having a very positive outcome. So... After that initial brief overcorrection, his blood pressure progressively rose. And that was despite us subsequently giving him sort of multiple infusions. We, we were up triturating his propofol and fentanyl. His GTN was back up to max. We started a libidolol infusion. And I believe uh, sodium nitroprusside was also started in the ICU. His CT brain showed focal occipital intracranial hemorrhages, which was consistent with a diagnosis of PRESS or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, which is one of the common potential adverse outcomes of hypertensive emergencies. He did actually, for a brief period of time, experience some cortical blindness, but thankfully that resolved. And a few days later, he was able to walk out of the hospital and go home. So Great. all it's in a good all, outcome. at least in the short term, yeah, a good outcome. A lot to discuss there, a lot to think about with a case like this. And I think it does really show the intersection between where our soft skills come into play when it comes to the management of our resuscitation patients and how important prioritization is when you're talking about real world applicability of textbook medicine, really. And I think the discussion points that the case raises really touches on those important topics, which is really good. So thanks for bringing that to us. I think some of those interesting takeaways for me were around the hypertension and hyperkalemia management, but um, Shreyas, what were your three takeaways from this case? Yeah, so I think the most important thing for me was that continuous process of re-evaluation. So what is the situation that I'm in? What are my potential barriers? What are my staff resources? And how can I optimize my environment? And I think having that continuous situational awareness is critical for any resuscitation. And it doesn't matter what framework you use, but or even if you use a specific framework, but as long as you have that awareness, that awareness is important, would be my take-home number one. The second thing, I think just a couple of nuances. I think just being aware of the hyperkalemia sort of adjustments that you can make in the renal patient. So consider going down to five units of insulin for the patient with significant renal impairment and hyperkalemia, just because that insulin is going to hang around for a long time. And we have a reasonable uh, assessment that you're going to reduce your risk of hypoglycemia with achieving a similar reduction in the potassium. Consider adding that 10% dextrose infusion if the BSL is less than seven. That's 50 mils an hour for at least four hours. And then with the hypertensive crisis, think of it like correcting sodium. Protect the brain, take your time, and reduce it slowly. Well, great. Thank you so much for sharing that case with us, Shreyas. Definitely raised some interesting thinking points there. And we hope that you guys enjoyed hearing the case as much as we did talking about it. So thank you so much for joining us. And we hope to see you guys next time for our next case discussion series. In the meantime, we'll be releasing some show notes, which will have all of the references for the topics that we've spoken about. So you can enjoy perusing that. And if you have any thoughts or any cases that you think might be interesting for us to discuss, please feel free to email us at westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.